Um, the last couple of weeks, uh, we looked at a couple of responses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We looked at Peter's response and how Jesus restored him. And then last week, we looked at the road to Emmaus and looked at how a couple of them were skeptical in relationship to their response to the resurrection. And I appreciate a number of your comments and even some of you guys saying, hey, I'm going to redeem my lunches at work and spend time outside my classroom or outside my cubicle and interact with other people. And so that was a great encouragement uh, to me uh, <clears throat> to see that you have a desire to connect with people and interact with folks outside your cubicle during lunch. And so um, <clears throat> as we return uh, back to the gospel according to Genesis, uh, we are in chapter 9. Our hope is to get to at least a chapter of the covenant. In, the, in Genesis chapters 1 through 12, there are four key events that I want you to put your mind around, because these are four foundational events that shaped the world. The first one is creation, and after creation, there was what? The fall of man, and then the flood, and then we see God's plan uh, to go to the nation. So it's creation, fall, flood, and nations. And then from Genesis chapter 12 all the way to 50, there's four key people. I'm not going to tell you who they are, but you can think about it. Who are the four key people in the book of Genesis? I'll give you one. Abraham, right? That's the easy one. Who are the other three? So I want you to think through your Bible and this, who are the four key people? Um, I don't know why I'm using this as an introduction, but I thought it was interesting. In 1939, there was a movie that came out. It's called The Wizard of Oz. Have you, have, have you guys all seen this? Some, yes. Who has not seen this movie? It's possible. Like your kid, your parents might have, your your parents might have forbid you to see this because it was scary. Or if you grew up in another country, <laughs> you might not have seen it either. But Dorothy says to her, her dog at one point, Toto, I feel, Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. This whole idea. <clears throat> is this idea that, hey, we're in a different situation, we're in a different circumstances, and that's basically true right here when we get to, we've gone here to Genesis chapter 9. Basically, there's a whole new world set up, right? We know creation, we know the fall, and Noah and his family and their respective wives have been on an ark, not a boat. They haven't just been there for 40 days, as some people think, because they said it rained for 40 days, but if you read the scriptures, 150 days in total. So they've been on there a long time to be on a boat. Or not a boat, an ark. And so they come out of this ark the way they went in. Um, they went in two by two, um, every kind of animal. And their, Noah and his family and their kids and their wives, the same way they came out and disembarked the same way, um, <coughs> two by two and with Noah and his family. And they basically find themselves in a new reality and a new world. God is basically resetting and rebooting the world um, and humanity. And so in, <clears throat> what are the new changes? What are the new realities that we're going to look at? There, we, we st we'll look at four of them. Real new reality one is a dedication or a rededication to fill the earth. Reality number two is there's a dominion of fear and dread in relationship to the animals and the humans. 
And then reality number three, there's basically a new diet plan that's set up, and we'll see what that looks like. And then reality number three, guess what? There's now a death penalty in place. I've never seen this laid out like this until I decided, oh, okay, these are the distinct changes. I think I was aware of them, but now I'm more aware of them, and so will we all be together. So real, new reality number one is a dedication to fill the earth. Um, I just said there's been... 150 days that have passed, and things are now different. As Dorothy said, hey, something is different. We are no longer in Kansas anymore. We're no longer part of the old world. There's a new world that's been set up. And so we see here in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, it says here that God blessed and his sons and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Uh, the language, the Hebrew language is pretty sh- straightforward here. It, I'm going to come back to this. It says, God blessed, or the Hebrew word is Barak, um, Noah. There's a direct blessing from God to Noah. And this blessing should sound familiar. It reaches back to what? Genesis chapter 122 and 128. God said the same thing basically to Adam and Eve, right? And so he's... <coughs> A resetting this call to bless. This isn't talking, it doesn't say so in the scripture, but while on the ark, I think part of the assumption is that they were not doing any activity to make babies during this time while on the ark. I think Noah and the family was very busy, what? Caring for all the animals, right? And so um, this is what's happening here. God is saying, hey, you have landed, you're safe, it's time to go back to this blessing, to be a blessing, to be fruitful, multiply, and to fill the earth. God said to Adam and Eve, (coughs) basically said this to Adam and Eve, and basically God is doing this, restating it, reissuing it, and rededicating uh, Noah his wife, his three kids, and their respective wives to fulfill three imperative commands to procreate, be fruitful, to increase, and to fill, to fill the earth. <clears throat> These are commands given by God, commands that are to be obeyed, commands that are to be fulfilled according to God's will, grace, and timing. We understand there are situations that some are not able to have um, children, and that's a result of sin, and not the lady's fault, or the guy's fault, or even God's fault. It's a result of sin. Sometimes that happens. But <clears throat> for most, God has called um, men and women to come together in marriage and to make babies, to procreate, to have image bearers that will bear the image of God. And so God didn't say um, to be married and be unfruitful and to decrease and not fill the earth. He said the opposite. Um, God created men and men and women to to leave the parents, to cleave together, to weave. And part of being married is to multiply, to bear image bearers that would declare what? God's glory and give evidence of God's glory throughout the earth as they live and reflect God's image throughout the world. 
And so that's see is God this really only family to um, be fruitful and multiply. The difference with Eve is they have four couples with instead of two to be couples. Um, we see that this uh, blessing is extended through, in one sense, the second, well, Jesus is usually typically considered the second Adam, but um, this reissuing of this blessing is, <coughs> they also, <coughs> theologians refer to Noah as a new Adam, maybe not a second Adam, a new Adam, referring to Noah's offspring. And we see that, <coughs> that the seed is spread through Seth to Noah to propagate, and then we see that this is laid out through the patriarchs in the book of Genesis, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, and so those are some more key people in the book of Genesis. And ultimately, the seed would go from Abraham to a promised offspring, Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. And <clears throat> referring to Jesus Christ. And so um, all this is initiated from Genesis all the way to the cross, all the way to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. So we see, see this. This is a very interesting verse pointing to God's redemptive plan to see God's seed go forth. And it says here in Hebrews 9, chapter, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But we see him, Jesus Christ, who for a little while made him lower than the angels. He chose to make himself lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because the suffering of death, so that by grace, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So he's fulfilling God's redemptive plan to die on the cross to save everyone. Or at least he makes the means and provides the means that the death on the cross would be sufficient for actually, yeah, sufficient, sufficient for everyone. I want to get my theology right. Sufficient for everyone, but efficient for those who are elect and those who believe. That's beyond what's being said in this text, but we know biblical theology affirms that. And then verse 10, for it is fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist. Everything exists because of what? Because of Jesus Christ. For whom? For his glory and by Christ. He is the one that what? Was there at the beginning, preexisted in eternity past, and was involved with the creation of the world and involved with the sustaining of all creation here today. Um, some people think Jesus, what? Was this born um, and his life began at... I guess be the beginning of our current <coughs> calendar in the A.D. calendar. But theologically, we understand that he is the eternal Logos, that he existed, Jesus Christ, eternally. And <coughs> for what purpose? In bringing many sons to glory should make the founder perfect through suffering. So... <coughs> All this is in play as what? God restores the world, has Noah and his family, encourages them, and in fact commands them to have babies. 
And he says to be fruitful and multiply, and that God's seed would what? Spread on the whole earth, and image bearers would be made um, by faith and repentance. The image of God would be restored in people. That's called what? Sanctification. And that the world would know uh, that our God is glorious, and our God lives through people, and our God redeems through the Redeemer of Christ Jesus. So this is the first new reality. The new reality calls people to procreate and multiply, and it then calls for a second reality, is a dominion of fear and dread. This comes in Genesis 9, verse 2. If you remember, at the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, God made Adam and Eve. This was before the fall. This was before the flood. Given dominion in the garden, and they lived in perfect harmony with the animals, right? In fact, God brought all the animals to Adam and named every one of them. God didn't, Adam didn't have to chase around and look at every animal all throughout the garden to find these animals. God literally brought them to them. And at this time, in this perfect state where animals and the two humans, Adam and Eve, lived together, there was no sin. Um, there was no fallenness, there was no brokenness, um, and there were no dead animals. Adam killed animals to eat. Adam and Eve were what, assumed to be vegetarians at that time. So all that is in play up to this point. Okay? Um, I also believe on the ark, this is more Gary just thinking this through, it doesn't say it explicitly, but I believe Adam... Um, on the, I think on the ark, I believe on the ark, that there was a healthy trust in Noah's, Noah's, Noah and his family as they what? Cared for day in and day out for 150 days, the animals. The animals knew where their food was coming from, right? Noah's family, right? And so I, I, I think since there's that trust relationship there, that they had at least good harmony. I'm not saying it's perfect because they're outside the garden, but I think they had a good functional uh, relationship just coming and a respect to the authority of where the (coughs) food was coming from to the animals. And so we see in verse 2, God explicitly stating this, the fear of you and the dread of you, referring to Noah's family shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. And, and, excuse me, into your hand they are delivered. Again, God delivers the animals to Noah. Again, but it's a different relationship. It's not this perfect, harmonious relationship now there exists a degree, a general type of, of dread and fear between what? The animals and Noah's family at the beginning and what? Rest of humanity today. I'm not saying this is an absolute thing. Um, we know some animals are more comfortable with humans to a certain degree, but not as comfortable as they were in the garden. And some animals are what? Really scared of humans and they just are scared of them. And so that, that's the functional relationship now between animals and humans, okay? So in this life, um, in this new reality, there's 
<laughs> basically a sin-burdened world where things have been altered and changed. But at the same time, what? Adam and Eve and humans are called to still subdue and rule the earth. But now it's what? In a somewhat hostile world and environment, and the animals have this dread and fear in relationship to humans. We also understand that <coughs> some theologians view this as a, a means of grace to kind of put this fear within the animals. Um, they call these safeguards and <coughs> that now exist. And so basically in what? In this new world, it involves the killing of animals in which there wasn't before. And so I think that's it. Um, now, basically, uh, humans <coughs> exercise um, a limit. Uh, basically, the limit humans. Ex- excuse me. Basically, humans exercise this authority over um, animals. It's not a, a total authority, but this general authority, and they also have this dread and fear. Again, that's not total and absolute, but we recognize it's there. Um, John Calvin put it this way, the providence of God is a secret bridle to restrain their violence. That's good. I want to say thank you, God, for that, if I'm understanding that correctly. If there wasn't the secret bridle, what would the animals do? It'd be like Jurassic Park or something like that, right? They, They would eat... They would eat us, every little bug, every little bird plucking on our heads until they pluck little eyeballs out and stuff like that. There, there would be, that would just be terrible. We would be running for our lives all the time. There would probably be no humans at this point. So, two, that's two points. We have a new uh, call to, to create, procreate, to multiply, and we have a new relationship between humans and animals. And then in this new reality, the third one, is that there's a new diet, a new diet in verses 3 and 4. <clears throat> the third new reality is that God provided a new diet that is different than what Adam and Eve once enjoyed. We see in verse 3, just read carefully, this diet is different, and he states it right there. And this, there's a few things that stand out to me as we look at this. In verse 3 it says, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. So what does that mean? The living things, not just the plants, the living things are now what? Food for Noah and their family. Um, So I see this and say, hey, the doors are open, the doors are wider. At one time it was just vegetables. And we see in the next part of verse 3, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you now what? everything. We see that the Lord is gracious. God provides for his people. He's kind and generous that way. And we see that both vegetarian and carnival, carnivore, carnivorous type meat are available now to human beings. And so this is different than Adam and Eve. As we said earlier that they did not eat animals. But we, we know later on at the Bible in Leviticus, there will be restriction in, <clears throat> in regard to meat, but we're not looking at that today. But this is kind of where we are in our eating development here in the book of Genesis. And we also see in Genesis chapter 9, verse 4, it says this, 
He makes uh, some restriction here and makes it clear. He says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Okay, so there's some qualification here. This is the same phrase that should be familiar, you shall not eat. Do you know of another time in the Bible where it says that you shall not eat? In Genesis chapter where? Chapter 2, verse 17, there's, God is talking to Adam and Eve and says that you shall not eat uh, which kind of fruit? A tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? So, same phrase in Hebrew is once again used here. It's a, <clears throat> it's a negative command, it's a prohibition for e- against eating raw meats that still possess the animal's life blood. So that's the restriction here, all right? Uh, <clears throat> and Hebrews... Um, that, that, Praise uh, with its life is always associated with blood. Um, when there's blood flowing, that what means that there is the possibility and ability to have life. But we also understand in the Old and New Testament that blood meant another thing. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And so we see this sacrificial system in play where blood is shed for the purpose of the forgiveness or the atonement of sin. And if we look at this a little further in Leviticus chapter 17, verses 11 through 11 and 12, we see the following. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you, on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. So we see the condition and the restriction here. Uh, Ken Han takes this and explains this further. He says, the blood represents the life that was given by God. Men can eat the body of the animals, but the blood which represents life belongs slowly to God. The life of the animal's sacrifice was accepted for the life of the sinner. The blood made atonement for the soul, and so should never be looked upon as just something common. The blood must be poured before the Lord. And so the main thing I want you to take of this second section is your diet has changed. You can eat vegetables and you can eat meat, but there's condition here in relationship to the blood. And this, <clears throat> the last new reality of this new world is the death penalty. There's a lot to be said here. I'm going to try to condense it. Um, the, the fourth reality of the new world included the death penalty. We see here in verse 5 and 6. We'll first look at verse 5 where God says the following, or Moses says, God says the following through Moses to Noah's family. <clears throat> he says this, And for your lifeblood I will require, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, 
from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. So in other words, as we look at this, God is installing a death penalty. Um, if you remember in the beginning of the book of Genesis, there was what? Adam and Eve, and they had two kids, and they were Cain and Abel. Cain, what? Killed Abel. But there was no death penalty for him at that point. They didn't say, hey, you Cain, you Cain killed Abel. It's time to kill you. It wasn't set up and established. Yes, here now in the New World, it is set up that way in which if an animal kills a human being, the animal is to be put to death or require reckoning. If a human kills a, another human being here in this new world, that the death penalty is now in play. Fascinating. New to me, or kind of new, but it's just neat to think about. So how does this play out? It's supposed to play out really well, but it doesn't completely play out super well in our world today. But this is what God has set up for what? Society, civilization, for government, and for our good and God's glory. I mean, there's some exception causes when our world, our government calls us to disobey or go against God's will. We can choose not to comply. But for everything else, we are called to honor and submit to our government. We see also in verse 6, the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Okay? Um, it's interesting here, and the distinction between animals and humans is this reality. Adam and Eve, every human being, were made what? In the image of God. We are image bearers. All animals, creatures that creep on the earth and the ones that fly, they don't bear the image of God. And it's for this very reason God looks at, views, and sees, and relates to humanity differently. Why? Because we are image bearers. We bear the image of God. We are in a different class. We are in a different category than animals, dogs, cats, whatever other animals you might see in the world or in the zoo. I want you to see and focus. A couple times we see the word reckoning. This is a judicial term. And one way we understand God is a God of what? He's a God of wrath. He's a God of love, God who creates. But he's a God that what? Judges. And so we understand the word require is a judicial term. And so in one sense, God functions in a judicial way here. And so, um, <clears throat> and so we'll see this, we'll see this <laughs> play out in a few different ways. But this is something that God is installing and setting forth and is not to be revoked. And we see this idea carried out in the Old and New Testament. Um, in, the, in Exodus chapter 21, verse 28, it basically says if a beast kills an animal, the beast is to be killed. The animal is to be killed. Um, we do need to abide by this because it's what? spelled out to the Israelites and for civil law as a nation. So in Exodus 21, verse 28, it says when an ox, imagine this, an ox, big animal, gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten. 
but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. There's a lot of interesting things here. So just picture this in this time with Israel. If you have this ox and it happens to kill or gores a man or woman, what are you to do? Pick up stones, right? Come on, pick up stones and we're all going to stone the ox, right? That's the death penalty for the animal, all right? And some people might think, oh, the animal's dead. I mean, that, that looks like some, you know, great eating tonight. Let's barbecue the ox. Well, no, it says you're not supposed to eat. This flesh is not to be eaten according to God's will. But at the same token, the owner is not liable or not responsible, which is interesting um, for, for the ox's action. I don't know if you recognize sometime today, and then you'll hear about like a situation at the zoo where maybe a tiger or some animal gets out of its respective cage area and injures and kills a human being. Even though even that animal could be super precious, a rare species, they typically do what? They'll, they'll shoot it, right? Or there's a, they'll shoot it or use another means to uh, <coughs> kill the animal. No matter how precious or valuable that animal may be to the zoo, they... We typically make this practice today. Fascinating, huh? So the Bible, the Bible grants authority for what? Capital punishment here. Um, for, in the case of animals killing humans and humans killing humans. We see that <coughs> here set up here in Genesis and in Exodus. Um, how is guilt and charges determined in both the Old and New Testament? This is basically how it worked. They didn't have elaborate court systems and different layers that we do, local, state, and national court systems. This is basically how it functioned in the Old Testament. We see in Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, is based on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So basically on the evidence of two witnesses to confirm guilt <coughs> and conviction in cases of, well, in this case we're talking about um, the death penalty. And then the same thing is reaffirmed in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. He says, again, on the evidence of one or of two witnesses, and the one of the witnesses shall be put to death. <coughs> A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one. It's exactly the same thing here. And so, some people might ask and pause and say, hey, as I think through the Bible, God seems a little inconsistent in applying the, in applying the death penalty, right? We look at... And now here we think, walk through, thinking, okay, David committed adultery. Um, other theologians say he raped Bathsheba, and then <clears throat> um, he was involved with a degree of murder, but he never, what, faced and suffered the death penalty, because why? The Lord is also at the same time gracious and kind, and he wants to and calls people to faith and repentance. The same for the woman at the well. She did not murder anyone, but she did commit fornication and adultery. In some cases, uh, that could be <coughs> and suffer a major consequence. But again, 
Jesus met her, the woman at the well in John 4, and she, what, recognized that she, she was a sinner, Jesus was a Savior, and turned her life to Jesus Christ. And so there's grace in all this. Um, grace is in play. Forgiveness is in play. Um, not every situation, but it's there, and it's available for everyone. And why did God call for the death penalty for the murder of human life? I alluded to this earlier because what? We are simply made in the image of God, and we don't have the authority or right to play God and take the life of an image bearer. That is God's responsibility, and that's God's calling to give life and to take life. And God puts a high price on those, whether animal or human, that would kill and take the life of another image bearer. And he simply says, it's the death penalty. According to Matthew, um, he sets up and gives a reason for this. He says, capital punishment is not interpreted as a to the value of human life, but rather is society's expression of God's wrath upon anyone who would profane the sanctity of life. The New Testament writings interpreted capital punishment as a necessary foundation of society where the state is defined as the divinely designated servant or means that administers retribution. And so we see Romans 13, we'll look at it later, but that's basically saying that God has set up government to administer capital punishment. And so these four realities that we just looked at, uh, the dedication to fulfill the, fulfill the, to fill the earth, the fear and dread between humans and animals, the new diet set up, and the death penalty are all reaffirmed in the New Testament in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and Acts 15, Romans 13, and Acts 5. It's all reaffirmed. So you can't just say, hey, this is an Old Testament thing. It also is brought up again in the New Testament. Um, what are some of the implications? Why does this matter? I'm not going to hit everyone, but here's a few that came to mind. Um, the first one I want to throw out is what is the death penalty for sin? I just want to remind us that the death penalty for sin is what? Death, right? And we know also God is gracious in all this. In Romans 6, 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so, recognize this, that death is the consequence for every human being born sinner, born as one who has broken God's before a holy God, has a status before God as one not righteous, not right before God. As a holy and just God, we stand in the position of judgment. But the free gift of God is what? Christ's righteousness, his perfect righteousness, only given by faith alone, where your standing can be changed by this very gift and received by faith alone, through Christ alone. So I want to put that out there, since we're talking about the death penalty. Um, this actually hangs over all of us before a holy God because we're sinners. But in this world, if God says the death penalty is a consequence for murder, murder, how can it be and how should it be applied in other situations? So this gets a little dicey and spicy, but I want you to understand I'm just a messenger, okay? Don't throw the rocks at me. Take these thoughts with God and understand what his Bible is saying here, given what we looked at in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. 
Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 to 6. Should the death penalty be applied in cases of abortion? If we think about abortion, what is abortion? It's a deliberate, intentional act of one human being to cause the death of another human being. I know some will say that when the baby's unborn, it's not a human being, but those of us who have moms and those of us have new babies, you go through a process where you're two to three months in, you go through an ultrasound and you see a baby. You see the leg kicking, you see a heart beating, you see moms often tell me it feels like a butterfly, a little flapping inside the uterus, right? And so it's a real baby. Um, Sometimes I have discussions with people, you know, when is it more human than unhuman? You know, it's three months, four months, five months, six months, or just a second it comes out of the womb. You know, it's been a human ever since it was conceived. And so this is a human being. And so when an abortion takes place, it's what? The killing and the murdering of an image bearer. Um, <clears throat> here's another situation to get you think a little further. Um, wife, I'm going to put you as an example. There are times that you are pregnant three times. If something terrible happened, if you're walking down the street and you're pregnant with Apollos, and if someone ran you over, would that just be the murder of you or the murder of you and the baby within you? The baby within you. So it's two counts of murder, right? We, we, we get that. But for whatever reason, our society says something different when abortion takes place. And the thing is, we don't let, we do let, and we shouldn't. But Christians are weak in their mind and weak in their convictions. <clears throat> this is kind of our, our battle in this day. Where do we stand and how do we live out our faith? Do we take the dictates of the world and their feelings that they want to throw at us? Or do we take the dictates from God and His command and His authority? And that's the primary voice we listen to as it relates to life. And I'll just pause. Whose voice, whose authority do you listen to? And I'll put an exception. We had a dear friend that helped me to understand it. Um, in stress and pressure, she was a believer. She had an abortion, and she felt very guilty when she had an abortion. And <clears throat> I want you to know that there's grace and there's forgiveness in our mistakes and even in our sins that we commit in the stress of the moment or the heat of the moment. God's grace is bigger. God's grace is greater. And there's redemption there, too. And there's hope, and there's forgiveness. What about youth, youth in Asia? Um, this is the idea when someone is sick, they have an incurable um, It's irreversible. They might be in a coma, and you want to quicken and hasten, quicken their death um, in a painless kind of way. want to remind you that God is what? The giver of life. He's also the taker of life. It is our role not to play God. It is God's role to play the role of God to give and take life. Um, so we must leave it to God when he wants someone to die. I'll be honest with you, I struggle with this. I have seen people die, and it's painful, especially when it's long and drawn out. 
Yes, you want it to happen quicker, and you want it to happen faster. I mean, I really want to die quickly. I want my death to be quick, whatever form it looks like. I don't look for the drawn-out version. But given what the Word of God says, if we take life in our own hands, either killing ourselves or having someone else assist or killing, it is, by definition, by definition, it's a form of murder, okay? So question number three. In war, um, when one side is killing the other and the other side is killing the other too, a lot of people die on the hands of human beings. Is this, is this murder? That's a good question, right? In the Old Testament, we even see God himself calling for what? War. And we see the death among nations. But I want you to understand this distinction on, on a couple levels. There's a distinction between a national matter and a civil matter. There's also the reality that um, in war, it is your king or your president or your dictators calling you um, out to war. It's not saying, <clears throat> it's not this personal matter between one person and another person or a few other people where murder is taking place. So there's a distinction. This is not classified by God as murder um, <clears throat> on the level of, of the death penalty. So that answers that question. In Ecclesiastes, if you are in the study, you might be toward the end of the book or some of us at the beginning of the book, but when you hit chapter 3, there's a time for everything, right? Mourning, weeping, laughing, dancing. At the very end of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 8, it says there's a time for love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. So there you go. Um, last passage I want to leave you is this something we, we looked at a couple of years when we went through the, the book of Romans. But understand in the New Testament, God has set up and ordained authority, his authority through government authorities. And so you see here in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. And I guess before I read this, um, let me read it first and I'll do my caveats. Um, <clears throat> there's a relationship. Um, between the government God has established and God himself. And you see it here in Romans 13, verses 1 through 5. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So I'll just park it and stop right here. All humans are what? To be subject to the governing authorities, and these authorities have been given from who? God, right? So God has put every authority. Um, I understand there's no perfect human government. Some are better than others. Some we choose probably never or want to live under. But God still puts these authorities that we are to subject ourselves to them unless these, what, governments call us to sin and then we have opportunity to refrain. Do we have an opportunity to refrain? I'm not answering that question. You could think about that one. But some say yes, some say no. Um, <clears throat> but we'll leave it at that. Um, verse 2 says, Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what? 
what God has appointed? Well, maybe I answered that question, or the Bible answered that question. And those who resist, well, what? Incur judgment. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subject not only to avoid God's wrath, but for the sake of conscience. So there's a lot here. I know it's didn't pack, unpack every if, and, or but, but you understand the line of thinking, God's design um, for life. When God gives life, God takes life. That's not our responsibility or calling, no matter how dire that situation, we, we what? Submit our lives and other people's lives to the Lord. Um, and so, this is a new world, or the new world order. Dorothy was somewhat right. This isn't Kansas anymore. This is a new world in which we live in, in this time, in this framework in human history. And one day, what? Jesus will come back, and we'll set up a new heavens and new earth, and we'll participate in life in the new Jerusalem. But until then, this is what it looks like. So I want to encourage you guys to talk and have discussion about this, and it could be healthy, it could be friendly, and it could be very respectful. All right? <laughs> All right. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that is living and active and helpful, and it shows uh, a display of your love, display of your perfection, a display of your glory for all people. And so my hope is that we would see you um, as our authority in all this. Um, and there's some things that we need to adjust to, and some things that we need to... And being the creation, and you as the creator, who has every right to uh, exercise your authority and your ways, because they're higher than ours. And so um, we pray, Lord, that we could come to, to, just to trust you all the more as our creator and recognize that uh, we are your children, your creation. So we have our own limitations. And at the same time, you call us to find our joy in you, to honor you, and to seek to glorify you in all these areas of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing to our King.